All right. Yeah. Hey, it's working. Good. Let's begin with a word of prayer, all right? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being alive in interesting times. And Lord, I just ask that you take control of each of our lives and use them all for good. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let me just suggest, I am not a survivalist. I am not going to be here to tell you what kind of food they have, what kind of weapons they have, and how to store all kinds of stuff up. People ask me if I store food, and I said, well, I do believe in food storage. There's something we call winter every year. And if I'm prepared for winter, I'm prepared for pretty much whatever. I'm not preparing for the end in that sense. I'm just preparing for regular life. Okay, I'm a gardener, and we tend to can and do all kinds of stuff. It's a little more challenging now that we don't live at home. Well, we occasionally get there. From September to May, we get home two days every other week. And uh, during the summertime, we're home about half the time, and we have a beautiful garden. And so we can what some stuff, and we live in an area with orchards all over the place and if I see somebody with fruit trees that isn't picking them I go say hey if you don't want to if you're not going to pick your stuff you mind if somebody else does you know if somebody has fruit trees or garden what they're used to is nobody will pick it they'll just want it if somebody volunteers to pick it and then I give them other kinds of veggies that I have from my place and I just make all kinds of new friends and we get to talk about Jesus and all kinds of stuff while I get all kinds of free fruit it's a pretty good deal so we can and stuff for the winter. Only thing is, we're hardly home enough in the winter to eat any of it anymore. So, well, I am an outdoorsman. I love the outdoors. And years ago, I picked up a habit of reading survival stories for the outdoors. Now, it was a, hat, I mean, a, a hobby, so to speak, because it was kind of fun to read these stories. But the more I got into outdoor activities, the more I realized I needed those stories. I'm probably alive today because of a few of those stories. Now, let me tell you, I do things like rock climbing, backpacking. Okay, when I go backpacking, there have been times I really go backpacking. I have two 1,000-mile backpacking trips behind me. It takes two months to walk that far. And uh, <laughs> so... I have been outdoors for long periods of time. I tell you, you go out in the mountains for two months and tell me if you're going to run into a survival situation in two months out there. It's going to happen. Weather will guarantee it. Uh, recently, my wife said that we don't need any more survival stories, but we keep doing outdoor activities. And so we went with some friends on a nice, easy thing. It was a hundred and some mile road. Part of it was supposedly four-wheel drive, but it's pretty mild stuff. So last Labor Day weekend, or... You know, in the hundred and some miles, we didn't meet any civilians out there. We met a few Forest Service people. And then, of course, we were in an interesting position when the forest fires burned in front of us and behind us. And we ended up spending a night with a fire crew. And that's the safest place to spend the night when you're watching the fire. And, <laughs> and uh, the next morning, they cleared the road, and we followed them through three miles of fire. So, I'll tell you, if you go out there, you're going to have stuff happen. 
And I've learned that if I pay attention to the survival stories, we're in a lot better shape to survive in them. And so that's the history of me loving survival stories. And a few years back, it dawned on me, there is a parallel between physical survival and spiritual survival. And then it dawned on me, you know what? Jesus used stories all the time to teach biblical spiritual truth, right? Daniel used stories to tell you how to live in the troubled times he predicted in the prophecies. I just decided, hey, you know, this stuff actually fits together. Duh. And so I'm going to share with you some principles that come from people who study survivors. Now, one of the books is Deep Survivor that I've read on this one. The other one is called The Survivor's Club. And as I read through them, it was just amazed at, at the illustrations that I could see from Scripture. So this is not about survivalism. It is about surviving spiritually and thriving spiritually in troubled times. Which is more important? You see, surviving even physically isn't just about a long life. It's about an attitude. People say, oh, why do you do things that are scary and you could get in trouble with? Well, I could stay on the couch in front of the TV and die of a heart attack. That does not sound like near as much fun as going out and living it rather than watching somebody else live it. And uh, so here we go on surviving and thriving in troubled times. The first key is attitude. And we find this attitude in Romans 8.28 and Philippians chapter 1. Let's take a look at what it says. See if you can read that. Some of you can. Depends on your eyesight probably. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. How many things work together for good? What about the worst that's ever happened to you? What about the worst you've ever done? During this presentation, I'll be talking about both of those and how they work together for good if you give them to Jesus. By the way, if you want to just be miserable about the worst that ever happened to you, you just hold on to it on your own. If you want to watch him use it for good to change your life and other lives, give it to him. And he'll use it for good. Your choice. Uh, the other principle is this one. Philippians, it's about hope. So attitude and hope are the real things here. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He doesn't sound too worried about dying, does he? But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. Life, death, man, this is a hard choice. Which would I rather? This is Paul writing. And uh, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of the faith. Okay, how are you going to discourage Paul? Just picture, what happens when the Romans get ticked off at a Christian? They bring them in, ask them to renounce their faith, right? Burn some incense to the emperor and say the emperor is really the top person. And they'd say no. Well, we'll kill you if you don't. Paul says, make my day. <laughs> what do you mean, make your day? Well, the next thing I know is the resurrection. Hey, I have no more troubles if you kill me. 
is this your baby dressed in a white wool coat? <laughs> That's fine. Somebody says she might be from F. Okay. So they say, okay, Paul, we'll fix you. We're going to make you live. But you're going to be a prisoner. He says, praise the Lord. What do you mean, praise the Lord? He said, well, you're going to make me a prisoner, right? Yep. That means you're going to have to have guards there to watch me, right? Yep. (laughs) They can't leave me, right? Right. (laughs) And the Bible says there were people in Caesar's household that were becoming Christians because they couldn't get away from Paul. (laughs) They say, he's happy either way. To live is Christ, to die is gain. All right. Which one? Now, take a look at this last part. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. When's the last time, and I'm still working on this one, when's the last time when you were suffering something, you were going, praise the Lord, thank you, Lord, for this privilege? What kind of attitude does this guy have? By the way, does he live it? They beat him for sharing the gospel with a lady, demon-possessed lady, drives the demon out. They beat him as a result of it. They put him in stocks, and he and his partner start singing praises to God. This guy believes it and practices it. And God God got so excited, he sent an earthquake and sent him loose. It's important that you believe everything works together for good. And because of that hope, whatever happens is okay. Nobody can get you down once you're in that position. Because you have that relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, let me explain these two a little more. They asked Admiral Stockdale, who was the highest ranking prisoner of war from the Vietnam era, what made the difference between those who survived and those who didn't? He said the difference was the first guys they lost were those who were overly optimistic. Because they'd come in as a prisoner of war and they'd say, they're going to get us out of here right away. We're going to be out of here by Christmas. Months pass. Christmas comes, Christmas goes. More months pass. And they got discouraged, depressed, and those were the first guys to die in general. There were other guys who were realistically optimistic. And they said, no matter what happens, if we help each other, someday, somehow, we'll get out of here. These are the guys that would, at great risk of torture, tap out bits and pieces of scripture with their cups in Moore's Code to each other. And by the time many of these guys left the prisoner of war camps, they'd memorize the entire New Testament without a New Testament. They stuck together. They helped each other. They took a couple of these guys and they told them that if they didn't go on television and say they were being well treated, they would be tortured and their buddies would be tortured back in the prison. So they went on television. And when they were asked if they were being well treated, they said, yes, we're being well treated. But with their eyes, they were blinking Moore's code that said torture. 
their words were saying one thing and the North Vietnamese were thrilled to get the words on tape and they broadcast it for the world to see. <laughs> and the military guys watched their eyes and saw torture, torture, torture. Now that would take a little bit of concentration to say one line of thought with your mouth and another set blinking code, wouldn't it? They must have practiced that somewhere along the line. But they were realistic, realistically optimistic. Now you see, hope makes a difference even for a mouse. So do not blame me for this experiment. I did not do it, but since it was done, you should learn from it. They took a group of mice and threw them in a large tank of water. And they pulled out a stopwatch and they timed how long it took them to die. It was four to six hours. And by the end of six hours, all the mice were dead. They took a second group of mice, threw them in a tank of water, and as each mouse in that four to six hour range started to go down, they reach in, save them, put them in a cage, and they let them stay in the cage for a week or two. Where they have food and water, just enough to drink, <laughs> and an exercise wheel, and it's warm, you know, and, and they get back, and they're nice and strong. And they throw them back in the water again. Whole group of them. Four hours comes, six hours passes, eight hours, ten hours, <laughs> twelve hours. These mice are still swimming. Fifteen, sixteen, eighteen, twenty to twenty-four hour range. Big difference from four to six, isn't it? What's the difference? Even a mouse will do better if it has hope. Because they learned that there could be something that's going to reach down and save them, and they weren't hopeless. And friends, if you are a Christian, you should be able to take a whole lot more than anybody else on this earth can take. Because you know God will use it for good, and someday, some way, you're going to get out of this. It might be at the resurrection, but you're going to get out of it. And so a Christian should be one of the best at survival. Uh... Now, there are some Christians or people who claim to be Christians who don't have a lot of hope and praise and happiness in their life. They've gotten a bad habit of asking God to forgive them for the same old thing in the past. How many times do you need to ask God to forgive you for something bad you did in the past? One time, friends. Not two, not a hundred and one. One time. But if you haven't noticed, Satan's going to come along and he's going to tell you, and this is all about attitude, all right? He's going to tell you, how dare you have done what you did? You said you were a Christian. How dare can you think of it? you're a Christian and you did that in your past? And you say, God. the first time around, the Holy Spirit convicts us of guilt. By the way, Satan isn't convicting you of guilt the first time around. He doesn't want you to ask forgiveness. But after you ask God to forgive you, after the Holy Spirit convicts you of guilt, now Satan will come in and try and counterfeit it. Because he wants to convict you of guilt and get you to doubt God's forgiveness. And he will say, how could you? How could you? And if you get into a habit of feeling guilty and asking God to forgive you for that old thing, you're now practicing doubt. And you're going to go into a doubt spiral and question yourself and question God. And you're going to be miserable. On the flip side of it, Here's what you do. The first time 
you feel impressed to ask God to forgive you for an old sin, you ask God to forgive you. Simple enough, right? The promise is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from how much of unrighteousness? So I don't need to ask God a second time, do I? So what do I do when Satan comes up and convicts me of doing something wrong? That's one thing. The other thing is to simply praise God for already taking care of it. And then remind him of his future. (laughs) Because, friends, if I start praising God and saying, Jesus, thank you for already taking care of that, am I going to go down or up? In praising God, I'm on an upward spiral. If I'm doubting God, I'm on a downward spiral. Wow. Let me illustrate it. When I was a kid, I got into a hobby. Antique bottle collecting. It was a lot of fun. Now, it was a good hobby in the sense that I actually earned money off my hobby. I sold hundreds of dollars worth of antique bottles. Now, I mean... I, I, I had an antique inkwell dump that I'd go dig in to get antique inkwells. It was the Emmanuel Missionary College dump from the turn of the century. I'd find both handmade and machine-made cork inkwells in there, plus an assortment of other interesting things. And I could sell those on a fairly regular basis. I also knew where there was a dump that was a, just at the time they threw out a lot of milk bottles. It was my milk bottle dump. And I could sell milk bottles. Some, I biggest sale I ever had was 110 milk bottles at one sale. And so I sold all kinds of stuff. And then there were other bottle dumps that I'd go in that were just old bottle dumps and I'd dig up bottles from the 1870s and 80s and stuff like that. I was always looking for hand-blown glass. They made the bottle-making machine in 1904. So hand-blown glass is basically 1904 and older. And uh, so my buddy and I were out looking for new places to go antique bottle hunting digging. And so we're riding our bicycles. Now we have driver's licenses at this point. We're in high school. But you do not drive a car onto somebody's farm and ask permission to go looking for antique bottles. They will say no. But if you, a couple of kids that show up on a bicycle and ask permission to go out in the woods and stuff out back and look for old bottles and an old dump or whatever, a good share of the time they'll say yes. Just be careful if they're drunk. We had one drunk give us permission then put a tin can on a steel T-post, fence post, pull out his rifle and start shooting at it. And we happened to be basically in line. And you could hear those crazy bullets coming at you after they go through a tin can. Zing! Zing! Yay. So don't take permission from a drunk. But in this particular day, it's March. And it's Michigan. And there's still a few patches of snow, but not many around. And we see this old farmhouse out in the country. And, I mean, it's from, it was built in the mid-1800s, probably. And from 1850 to 1880-ish, somewhere in there. So we figure there's going to be some old bottles around somewhere. As we pull in the driveway, there's a remains of a snowdrift over the driveway with no tracks through it. Nobody's been home for some time. We go up to the back door. We decided to knock anyway, make sure. Nobody answered the door. That was not a surprise. Just inside the window right beside us is a bottle with the daffodil in it. Now, the daffodil is... It's dried out. It's been there for at least a year because the daffodils haven't 
aren't quite ready to come out yet that time in Michigan. So we look at that and figure, hmm, the bottle was from the 1880s. We look at each other, there's some old bottles around this place somewhere. Since nobody said no, we take that as a yes. And so we go in the woods out back and we look for a dump. We didn't find anything good. And we came up a little closer and there were some outbuildings. And my buddy's crawling under this little shed. And he crawls out and he's got this quart-sized milk bottle. Now, it's a really nice milk bottle. It's got a lady embossed in the glass milking a cow. Yeah, but it's not hand-blown glass. It's from the 19-teens or the 20s. All right? So, but it's still worth 20 to 60 bucks. So, I mean, that's not one we're just going to leave there. We put it in the backpack. And we go up by the house. And the house is a little bit L-shaped, and there's this little patch of grass right in the back as the driveway comes around. And in the middle of the little patch of grass there, there is this little depression in the grass. Aha. That's either an old outhouse hole or an old trash pit. Either one is good bottle hunting territory. Because people would throw things down outhouses they didn't want people to know about. I mean, opium bottles and that kind of stuff. And yes, you could buy opium bottles, bottles of opium in the drugstore back then. I've only found a few of them, but I did find some. And uh, by the way, a hundred-year-old house is just good black dirt. And, uh, and it's pretty easy to tell when you're going down a shaft or something like that when you hit the edge of it because the dirt changes. And so we decided we're going to check this thing out. This is the little grass patch in their backyard. We have our specially made bottle hunting hose that we've made, and they've got one really sharp side, and they're really thick plate steel. It works for an axe, a hoe, all kinds of things. We take them on edge, and we start cutting the grass and rolling it back. Now, that's what they do in a sod farm, right? So we just roll up the grass in that area of the backyard, and as we're rolling off the grass, we're finding all kinds of bits and pieces of very old glass. We realize as we're taking it off, this was a trash pit. And we dig down in. Unfortunately, the trash pit was only about that deep. And they'd burned it really hot many times. And almost all the bottles that were in it were melted. Some really neat old glass, but melted bottles aren't worth a lot. Nothing. We found a few t intact bottles, but because of all the lye that they'd been in there with and all the ashes, they were now very etched. Frosted glass, kind of. But I have a Parker hair balsam from that pit bottle and uh, so put those couple of bottles we found that were good not many we put the dirt back in place and stomped the grass back in it's Michigan it's March it's going to grow back uh, it's not quite is the hole's not so deep anymore it's you know <laughs> and so we, we get it back in place and while I'm just stomping that down my buddy was looking in the window at that bottle from the the daffodil and he turns from the window to a door over to the side of the door we knocked on. And it's a door held on by four nails on the back part of the house. He reaches over. He bends one nail. He bends another nail. He bends the third nail. And the door falls off in his hands. He sets it to the side. And then he steps into the darkness. And I'm standing out in the sunshine thinking, don't they call this breaking and entering? And he stepped in. And I'm still out in the sunshine thinking, now what am I going to do? He steps out holding an 
amber bottle about this tall with a pine tree embossed in the glass, WQ Wishart's Pine Tree Tar Cordial. You turn the bottle, there's a complete paper label from the 1880s explaining the product and it will cure everything. Just one quick look at the bottle. It's worth somewhere in the $50 to $150 range. He puts it down by his backpack and he steps back in and he had company when he went back in. I was no longer thinking about breaking and entering. I was thinking about old bottles. And we went in there and we just stuffed both of our backpacks full of bottles. This was not an antique bottle collector's house. Antique bottle collectors do not store that kind of bottles under broken vacuum cleaners under the lowest layer of the trash. This was a wood room on the back of the old house, junk room. Stuff had been shoved in the corners and these old bottles way, way back there. And we just dug through the bottoms of everything and came out with these old bottles, filled our backpacks, uh, put them on our backs, put the door back on, walked over, got our bicycles, and we listened. Heard no cars. We went around the corner, jumped on our bicycles, and started riding down the road. Nobody saw us. Except for that little voice that says, you shouldn't have been doing that. You know that still small voice that can be pretty loud? You've heard it, huh? Some people tell me they've never heard the Holy Spirit. And I go, oh, really? <laughs> You've never heard, don't do it, don't do it, you shouldn't have done that? <laughs> um, and so I'm riding down the road, you shouldn't have done that. And I'm thinking, all we did is take out some really old trash for somebody. Of course, I know how valuable it is. And if you ignore this still small voice, it goes away after a while, looking for a more opportune moment. But if we had done nothing wrong, why did we listen to make sure no cars were coming before we came around the corner? A few years later, I met Jesus Christ in person. I mean, one, I mean, through scripture, okay? I became a committed Christian. And he reminded me of that. I asked Jesus, forgive my sins. Am I forgiven for breaking and entering into that house? How many times do I have to ask him? Okay. I went down to Southwestern Adventist University. They'd cashed my check several months before when I went on a backpack trip for me to come to school in January as my room deposit. When I showed up in January, the dorm was full and they forgot I was coming. I had the canceled check. <laughs> and they said, well, you're a freshman, but we don't have room in the dorm, so we'll have to put you down in the hotel with the upperclassmen. I couldn't see a problem with that. that. If I was a freshman at that time, you had to have permission to drive your own vehicle. As an upperclassman, I could park my truck at my front door of my room and come and go anytime I wanted. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll put up with being with the upperclassmen. But I had to walk to the cafeteria every day. And as I walked across the big yard, it was like God put a bullseye on it. As I walked across the yard, he said, remember those bottles you took? Yeah, I asked you to forgive me. Thank you. I want you to make it right. This is no longer about forgiveness. This, in John chapter 16, it says, the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin and of righteousness. In other words, it's just as much sin to not do the good thing that God's asking you to do as it is to do the wrong thing he's asking you not to do. All right? Because either one of them is rebellion. And rebellion's the bottom line of the problem. And so, 
I said, okay, Lord. Next time I go back to Michigan, I'll take care of it. I had already told my friends I was never, ever going to go back there. So that was not too hard to say. But you're laughing. You know what the Lord does, right? But the Lord would not leave me alone. And he kept impressing me, write a letter. <laughs> I said, but Lord, I don't know the address. Write a letter anyway. Okay, who am I writing it to? You should have seen the letter. I started out, dear fellow human. I had no idea who I was writing to. And so, dear fellow human, and then I explained how God had changed my life. And I didn't want anything I had done or failed to do to keep anybody else out of God's kingdom. I explained about I and another person breaking in to their house. And, uh, and then at the bottom of it, I am a student going to school at a Christian school, putting my own way through college. Do you know what that means about my financial ability? Broke mean anything? <laughs> and the P.S. at the bottom of it was, tell me if I owe you anything for the bottles. Oh, man, I hated to put that on there because I didn't have any money to pay if he asked for it or she, or whoever it was, my fellow human. And then God said, mail it. I said, I can't. He said, yes, you can. You ever gotten those kind of arguments with God? He wins. He said, you knew where it was, draw a map. So here's what I did for a map. I just put a, two lines on there, and I put northeast corner. And I could remember at that time the two roads. So I put down the names of those two roads, northeast corner, and I thought, okay, what's the nearest town? And I wrote the name of the town down. It was a little town of Henchman, Michigan. And I went to the post office, looked up the zip code for Henchman, Michigan, wrote down the zip code for Henchman, Michigan, and I went to a mailbox. And have you ever let go of a written confession to something that would be considered a felony? It's a little scary to do. I dropped it down, and you know they made those things so you can't reach around the corner and pull them back out. <laughs> uh, of course I did. What kind of confession is it without that? And I sent it with my return address on it. I was expecting to get it back with insufficient address stamped all over it with a smiley face beside that. It didn't come back couple of weeks went by. I was all nervous. A month went by. More time went by. And I said, okay, Lord, I did it. Not my problem anymore. And then one day I walked into my room. And there was a letter laying on the floor of my room. They would just throw mail under our door in the dorm where I was at, this old hotel. I picked it up. It was from some guy in Redlands, California, and it was a name I didn't recognize. But it had my name and my address on this thing. I opened it up, and as I began to pull it out, my stomach did a flip-flop. Because, you see, it begins, dear fellow human. This is the original. The light blue ink is mine. The dark blue ink is not mine. And uh, 
it's interesting, this little line he jotted across the top of the back. Because look how much dark blue ink that's all his on the back. Just a little bit of mine on the front, and it's almost all his letter. Across the top it says, I have plenty of paper. Why am I writing here? Because God had a purpose for this letter. Because there were going to be people in the kingdom over this letter. When God has a plan, man, it works. You see, this guy owned a farm in Michigan, but he lived in California. I had the wrong city and the wrong zip code on that letter. But it got there anyway to the right guy in California. And as I read it, it says, yes, there's wonderful power in the blood. Yes, I got a Christian. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and he goes on to talk about that. And he says he wanted me to pay me back by sharing the gospel with the guy that broke into the house with me. Oh, wow. Would I ever love to do that except I'd lost track of my friend. Last I heard, he'd been in Colorado. And this is before Facebook days, folks. And then there was this little P.S. I don't want to embarrass you with this check, but it's for tuition or however you need it. I looked in the envelope, and there was a check for $50. And a note asking on here, tell me about the worthy student fund at your school. I wrote back to him, but he never answered. He died right after sending this letter. A few years later, I made the mistake of using his name in a presentation. I thought I was fine. I was in Ohio. Michigan was a long ways away, and so was California. But there was somebody who knew him. And they walked up to me and said, I don't believe your story. I know that guy. He hated Christians and Seventh-day Adventists in particular. I had no idea. This was the only thing I knew about him and his name. I said... That may be interesting. Read the letter for yourself then. The guy read the letter and he just shook his head. I was later to find, this is a small world by the way, I was later to find that this man was the drinking buddy of my friend's dad that broke into the house with us. We didn't know any of that. And together, they hated Christians and Seventh-day Adventists in particular. So I have verification several times over about this guy and what he was like. But friends, I don't know when he became a Christian, but it may have been when he opened up a letter that said, Dear fellow human, I'm looking forward to meeting him and finding out if God used that letter for his salvation. But that wasn't the end of the story. There came a day that I was preaching in Maryland and into the balcony of the church where I was preaching walked my friend that broke into the house. He was not attending church anywhere. He was not a practicing Christian. He'd become just like his dad. He'd stopped by the church while traveling through Maryland on vacation just because he heard I was preaching there. He wanted to see me. He started to leave during the closing song. I left the platform during the closing song. He was not getting away. I invited him to my house for lunch. Brought him over to an antique bottle cabinet. I said, hey, 
remember the day we took these bottles? He goes, yeah. And we talked about that for a little bit. I said, now I want you to know the rest of the story. And I said, read the light blue ink first, then the dark blue ink. This is a guy who didn't want to talk about Jesus or Christian things. I said, that, in my mind, I'm thinking, that's fine. The Holy Spirit can nail him anyway. <laughs> I had him read the letter. He did not want to talk about the letter. He handed it back, but he read the whole thing. He left, took the borrowed motor home back to Colorado where he was living, was returning it to the owner, and he went down an alley, and he miscalculated, and he put a crease in a car in the alley with the bumper of the motorhome. Didn't hurt the motorhome, but it put a nasty little gash in the car. He looked around. Nobody was there. He got in the motorhome and drove on. He told me later, all I could think about was that crazy letter you had me read. So he went back to the car. Still nobody there. He wrote a note and said, I was driving a borrowed vehicle. I damaged your car. He said, I have no insurance. He said, but I do body work on the side. Would you let me fix your car? And he put his phone number down. They call him up and give him permission to fix the car. The next thing I know about my friend He's singing in a gospel quartet. (laughs) Is it worth listening? Okay, I've told many people, technically, there are lots of bad things people have done, right? And it doesn't matter what it is. A sin is a sin is a sin. But technically, according to the law, probably the worst thing that I've done is breaking and entering. I have a question. Is it very easy for Satan to use that against me today? Is it very easy for Satan to use it against me? When the man that I sinned against has forgiven me and Jesus has forgiven me and God has now used it to save other people for the kingdom? Are you going to bring me down very easy by reminding me of my past? No, I'm going to say, praise the Lord, isn't God awesome? I gave it to him and look what he did with it. Somebody could come up to me, I'm going to tell everybody that you broke into a house. I'm going to say, can't do that. Why? Because I already did. (laughs) Good luck. Give it a try if you want. The only thing that will take you down is the sin you refuse to give to Jesus Christ and let him use for good. And once he's used it for good, friends, it's okay. I have a young pastor who became my associate. He got married really young in life. Because he had to, sort of. That marriage was over before he was 20. He became converted, went to school, became a pastor and got married just as he came out of theology training. They sent him to me for field training. And he says, what am I going to do when people find out this isn't my first marriage? I said, It's not going to be any big deal because you're going to tell him the Sabbath. He said, what do you mean I'm going to tell him the Sabbath? I said, you just got the sermon and you're going to share your life story and how God's used it for good and you're going to tell him the Sabbath. So he did. I was talking to him years ago, but I was talking to him just a week ago 
And he tells me he always does that within the first month of where he goes now. Because you know what God did? As soon as he shared that, a whole bunch of people who were struggling with divorce issues started coming to him and asking him for help. And so he decided, hey, we've got all kinds of people in this area that are hurting. Let's start a divorce recovery group. And so we have Christians and non-Christians coming out to a divorce recovery group. Could he effectively led that if he wouldn't have admitted what God had done in his life? Do you see how God will take the worst things that you've done and turn them into good things for him? Why hide? Let Jesus have it and clean it up and use it for good. That's the attitude of a survivor. If you don't have that attitude, it will take you down. Okay, checking my time. Uh, Let me get on to this next piece. Well, this one is just the reminder that God can use anything for good. The worst that you've ever done, the worst that's ever happened to you, later, uh, not tomorrow, but in my third presentation, I'll talk about how God used the worst thing that's ever happened to me for good. But again, you have to give it to him. You can't hold it to yourself. You need to think the unthinkable. Survivors do think the unthinkable. Take a look at, well, let me put it this way. Military people and police officers always know what their escape route is if something goes wrong. They walk into a room, they have a tendency of knowing where the exits are, and if something goes wrong, they already have an idea of what they're going to do. It's not that they're paranoid. It's some training that's stuck deeply inside of them, and they've been in bad situations before. And to some degree, I pick that up over time. I pick it up on what could go wrong on a rock climbing experience. And I'm always watching because I'm trying to avoid rocks hitting bodies or bodies hitting rocks. And uh, I'm always thinking about what could go wrong. That's a biblical pattern. Take a look at this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 and 4. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. The world might be saying peace and safety, but a Christian ought to be knowing, based on Scripture, it's not going to end with peace and safety. There's some nasty stuff coming. And I'm not worried about it because I'm looking forward to the deliverance that comes when that hits. By the way, when a lady goes into labor, I know very few ladies who are looking forward to labor. I just can't wait for labor. Children I don't care about, but labor I love. Do you know very many people like that? I know lots of ladies love children. They tolerate labor just to get children, right? That's why God uses labor as an illustration of Christ's coming. It's not that great for the labor, but hey, the birth, the new life in Jesus is wonderful. So you focus on the new life. Um, Also, 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So we need to be thinking, to be learning to think the unthinkable. You notice the numbers I have there at the bottom? 10, 80, 10. 
they have learned that in a crisis situation, 10% of people will, their mind will go into kind of an overdrive. They will logically think through what is best for them and what is best for other people, and they will do things that are positive for themselves and positive for the people around them. 80% of the people will sit around waiting to be told what to do. By the way, if you're a Christian, you're reading God's word, you ought already, already ought to know what to do. You already have your orders from God. 10% of people will panic and become downright dangerous for themselves and for others. That's what they figured out statistically in a crisis situation. Let me illustrate. We'll start out with the panic issue. As I've said, I'm a rock climber and I call myself a perpetual advanced beginner. I've only done a tiny bit of lead climbing. Not that good at it. Uh, but what I've done is I've taught basic rock climbing to hundreds upon hundreds of young people. Pathfinders, youth camps, all kinds of different groups that I've taught rock climbing to. And so far, praise the Lord, we have sent zero to a doctor. And, uh, but this one particular day, I was using a climbing tower to teach rappelling. It was at a youth camp. It was only 40 feet tall or something like that. It's no big deal. But what you do to teach rock climbing or rappelling is you get somebody standing on the edge of this thing They've got a rope that's anchored out over here. And all they have to do is lean backwards onto their harness, which I cannot do without a rope. And you basically sit down on that harness as if you're sitting down over space. If you're not used to it, it takes a little bit of practice. Because 40 feet, there's ground back there, and I'm going to sit on it? Mm-hmm. Go. Now, when I have a kid that's a little too cocky, I'm getting him ready and he's not listening to me or she's not listening to me. Usually the he, it's the category. And I look at him and say, are you ready to watch a movie? And they look at me and think, what do you mean a movie out here? I said, well, I heard right before you die, your whole life flashes before your eyes. So are you ready to watch a movie? What? Okay, got their attention. Now they listen. (laughs) And I get them over the edge safely. This particular kid was scared. I am not about to tell him about watching movies. I want him to win. Because he's a 13-year-old boy. When he hits the bottom, I want him to say, did you see what I just did? I am doing this for a very specific reason. I want them to have something to go brag about to their friends without having to do drugs, alcohol, or sex and get in trouble. By the way, if we don't give kids things that are exciting and good to do, they'll find something bad to fill it in with. I would rather take manageable risk than have them take unmanageable risk. And so I want this kid to be a winner. So I'm encouraging him, you can do it, you can do it. And he starts leaning back and he tries to pull back on his rope as if the, his hands are going to hold him. No, no, it's the harness and the rappel device that holds you up, not your hands. All you have to do is wrap the rope behind you, you stop. Pull it up, you go, just like a lever. Okay, okay. He starts to go, I can't, yes, you can. And I just keep him out there. I said, just a little bit. It's going to get real easy when this rope touches down. And it does. The rope touches down. 
And I said, okay, it should be easy now. He says, I can't do this. I said, yes, you can. No, I can't. I said, it's a lot easier to go down than up. I guarantee it. He said, I can't do it. And he reaches over to unhook his harness. In his mind, he just snapped. He's going to walk away from this. 40 feet off the ground. Luckily for both he and I, I was not tethered. Which meant I could grab his rope, as which I did. I swung down over the edge, and I aimed for those knuckles. And I kicked him really hard with my boot. Right across the knuckles. Ripped his hand off the buckle. He did not, was not successful in unhooking it. I pulled back up on his rope, got myself back up, dropped another rope down on him and hooked it into his harness, and I pulled this kid back up. He was not getting out of my reach. And then I took him down a ladder, which somehow he thought was safer. Mm -mm. And, but I still had him roped. This kid is not getting away from me. That's what happens when you lose it on the 10% when you panic and you do dangerous things. 80% of people will this kind of go into neutral and do wait to be told what to do or try to do what they always do. There was a lady that was trying to get on a subway in London. There is an escalator that has a fire at the bottom of the escalator and people are getting on the escalator. Smoke is billowing up out of the subway. They're getting on the escalator riding down into the smoke and the fire in their desk. A, a police officer sees what's happened. He's standing across the top of the escalator and this lady says let me by I've got to catch that train he said lady there's a fire down there there will be no train I have to be on that train get out of my way and she's fighting with him trying to get by him and he's literally fighting with her to save her life he wins she doesn't go down that's what happens when people try to do what they normally do and there will be a lot of people in a crisis situation or the end of time that just keep trying to do what they're always used to doing instead of the right thing We were flying the day they put the no liquid restriction into effect. I don't know if any of you were on airplanes that day. It was not fun. There was no advance notice. I went to bed, 10 o'clock, nothing had changed. At midnight, in England, there's an attack at Heathrow Airport, which means they throw no liquid restrictions in overnight when nobody knows it. And in the morning... I'm riding into uh, Baltimore, Washington International Airport. Guess what kind of airports have high security? Washington, D.C.? Uh-huh. <laughs> and so we're coming in from the remote parking, and I hear people talking about new restrictions. And I look ahead, and, I, and I'm hearing this kind of noise of helicopters hovering around the airport. And why do we have helicopters hovering over the airport today? And I'm hearing all this stuff, and I'm picking up about a terrorist attack somewhere. And we get to go get off this bus, and there are hundreds of people on the outside of the airport in lines that go nowhere with people with bullhorns explaining the new restrictions. As we're getting off the bus, I looked around, realized these lines are going nowhere, and said, Karen, nobody's blocking the doors. Let's head on in. So we, we head into the airport, and there's a horrendous line at security, but we hop in that line, and because I have to get through security to get in my plane, right? Well, we don't make it through security before our airplane has already passed its time to leave. I'm getting worried about it. My wife says, don't worry. It'll work out. It did. It, that plane didn't even get there. 
until well, well after it was supposed to have left there because everybody was a mess that day. They had these huge rolling dumpsters, okay, where people were throwing all their liquids, all their perfumes, all their valuable liquids in there and just rolling them away. It's your choice. Throw everything away and get on the plane or keep it and don't get on the plane. But my point is, you had hundreds of people on the outside waiting to be told what to do. We should be ready to know what to do and do it. And they stood there listening to the directions over and over and over in their lines to nowhere. 10% of people, oh, a hilarious one on that one was ASI two years ago. It was in Sacramento. Some of you may have been there. During the worship service, the fire alarm went off. Now, I pastored a church that was destroyed by an arsonist. I've been involved with fires. I looked at my wife and I said, let's go. I grabbed my computer under my chair and I'm heading out the door. Everybody's sitting around. As if, do you know what a fire alarm is? When it's screaming and you can't hear the person up front and you're in a building, what should you do? Leave. You just sit there. There's been multiple times we've seen this happen. People sit there like, what do we do now? 10% of people are going to be smart and do what they need to do. 80% of them are going to sit there and wait for somebody to tell them what to do. And they sat there until somebody up front walked up to the mic and said, well, don't know what it is, but you probably ought to leave. Okay, in-time events. Are you going to wait for an official to tell you what you ought to do and hope they got it right? Or are you going to study God's word and know for yourself? And it's really not much more difficult than knowing that when there's a fire alarm, you move. You just do what God says. Uh, well, let me back up. I'm, what time am I supposed to get done? 3.15, good enough. Um, so, thinking the unthinkable. When I go rock climbing, again, I told you, the biggest thing is to keep bodies from hitting rocks and rocks from hitting bodies, Right? I am constantly playing pool. If a rock falls, it's going to go where? I am not worried about the person on the rope. I'm worried about the people that are watching or the belayers. Uh, one particular day, I had this wonderful belay stand because we had a top rope situation set up. We call it a slingshot. It would go up, go through a carabiner, and come back down to the climber. And so the belayer can be at the bottom watching the climber. It's a lot more fun that way. And I'm sitting there belaying, and if my climber falls, all I have to do is turn my hand to the side, and he stops. It's that simple. And the problem is, you tried this for hours. Oh, man, it gets pain in the neck. And so there was this wonderful tree about this big around that leaned out at an angle. Huh, I tie off to the tree. He can't pull that tree off the ground if he falls. And I lean against the tree. And so if he falls, I just twist my hand to the side and the tree takes the, hit, takes the hit. I love it. And I'm just easily watching him without cr crooking my neck. And he's starting to go up and he's climbing off to the right side of me and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, hey, you know what? If he knocks any rocks loose, comes down over like where that speaker is and there's this big ang angled slab of rock. Ew. 
the pool shot doesn't look good. Even though this is a wonderful spot, I don't like it anymore. I said, just a second, tie off and hold off at a spot. I'm moving my belay. So he does. I move my belay, and then he starts climbing again. Just a few moments after he starts climbing, he grabs this nice little ledge. By the way, we are not climbing established routes. We're climbing in remote areas of Arkansas at the time where nobody's thought about rock climbing. And uh, he pulls up on this ledge, and the whole ledge breaks loose. No big deal for him, except he has this terrifying thought. I've just killed my belayer. Do you know what happens to you if you kill your belayer? You die seconds later. It's a one-two punch, because if I die, I let go of the rope, and he falls. And his thought was, he just killed me <laughs> when the rock broke loose. And so this rock breaks loose. It hits that angle rock, rips the bark right off the tree I'd been leaning against. But I'm off to the side. I got hit by one rock, and I saw it coming. And so when it hits me in the leg, I jump just a little bit. It hits. I do a somersault. Land still holding the rope. And he's fine. I mean, it didn't even take that much skin off of me. And so he's going, oh, I thought I was dead. (laughs) Is it worth thinking the unthinkable? Just two years ago, we were climbing on a kind of a rotten granite area. And I was setting some ropes. And this was a place where lots of people climbed. And I, I was setting some ropes. And I had a climber going. And my wife, a great belayer, was belaying this guy. And it doesn't matter if he weighs twice as much as her. All she has to do is twist her hand. She stops him. And I'm up above looking down, and I look down. I said, Karen, I don't like where you're at. Could you please move your belay from one side of that tree to the other? She did. A few moments later, this guy has a 100 and some pounds of rock, probably, based on the size of the rock that peels off. Goes down, hits, shatters like a shotgun, and blasts right through where she's been. And she's off on the other side, just fine. Thinking the unthinkable are things that we need to learn to be doing. Now, I have an illustration in here that I forgot to get out. I need a volunteer to come up here with me for a moment. Anybody, somebody come up here. Come on up. Now, I'm just, I want you to look at something. Then I'm going to ask you some questions about it. Okay. Is it a lot of money? Yes. A lot of money. Okay, let's see if they can guess what a lot of money might be. Uh, can somebody have a guess on how much money I'm holding in my hand? $100 bill. Are they anywhere near it? No. Higher or lower? Higher. Somebody else? $1,000 bill? No. You're, are they higher or low? low? Somebody said something over here. A little bit warmer. Okay. Anybody else? Oh, by the way, is it in dollars? Yes. It's in dollars. Okay. It's real money. Papa, take a guess. <laughs> a million five hundred. He's not much closer, is he? Well, no, but I think it's somewhere <laughs> How much is it? No, look again. Oh, 50, sorry. 50, 50 trillion, trillion dollars. Bank of 
Zimbabwe. That's why I said Papa takes <laughs> Thank you. $50 trillion. I could pay off the national debt with one of these. Except in Zimbabwe at the time, it's worth nothing now, but at the time, oh, this was back all the way back in 2008. It's ancient history in 2008 for them. But, but back in 2008, it was worth a loaf of bread. Oh, if hyperinflation happened in the United States, your savings wouldn't even be worth a slice of bread. Your retirement is worth what? Not much, is it? Think the unthinkable. Jesus said not to put our treasure up on earth, but to store it up in heaven. So if I put everything into earthly treasure, all they have to do is reassign the value of money. By the way, what causes hyperinflation? Well, what caused it in Zimbabwe? What caused it in the Weimar Republic, which is in Germany? Which is something where, where you make expand the money supply rapidly. And the reserve in the United States calls it monetative easing, quantitative easing, which is expanding the monetary supply. They talked about maybe slowing down on it, and the stock market went crazy a few months or a month or so back and lost a lot of value. So they said, well, they're not going to back off on quantitative easing. They're going to keep pumping. You've heard them talk about pumping, right? Oh, by the way, the Bank of China has just decided that they've got to start pumping. The end result ends up usually being something like this. Or maybe Cyprus, where they decide the other way of doing it is to pay off the national debt by just confiscating 47% of everybody's bank account. They did that this year. Think the unthinkable. If your whole future is tied up in your finances and not in Jesus Christ, you could end up committing suicide, going into depression, all kinds of stuff, when it becomes worthless. Maybe there were some counsel, good counsel in being able to live without much finances and realizing that someday, no matter how much money you had, it wouldn't do any good for the work if you kept it too long. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Always be aware that what people think is what will save them may not be the truth. Um, think the unthinkable, and you're going to be ready. I'm going to, I skipped a story, then I'm going to go back to it about how God uses all things together for good. I was pastoring a church in Hagerstown, Maryland. Uh, it was an interesting church. I was there eight years, and I was in court eight times. And uh, I love the church, don't get me wrong, but it was an exciting time. One of the things early on that happened was we blew an engine in our car, and we were supposed to be going on vacation. And then they messed up fixing it. And I'm, you know, starting to wonder, Lord, what do you have against vacations? <laughs> we're leaving now the next morning. The car's finally fixed. 
At one o'clock, my telephone rings. I pick up the phone. Are you the pastor of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on Dual Highway? Yes, I am. Your church is on fire. Click. Interesting wake-up call at one o'clock in the morning. A few moments later, the telephone rings again. I'm wondering if the same lady wants to finish the conversation. (laughs) And uh, it's my head elder. He said, I just got a phone call from the police department. They said, our church is on fire. I said, yeah, I've got a sneaking suspicion. It probably is. (laughs) I said, I'll meet you there. And I started getting dressed. And I, instead of just putting on something really quick, I was putting on something like business casual, a kind of a dress shirt and pants like this and heading out the door. And my wife said, why are you taking so long? I said, number one, if it's a little fire, it doesn't matter how quick I get there. If it's a big fire, I won't be coming home for a long time. And uh, so I left. Am I driving towards the church? You've got to understand something. We need to lose this church. It's an old church that's on prime commercial land. We have a for sale sign on front of it. We have brand new land by the junior college for a church. We have a half acre site in town and we have a church of 300 and some members and we have 20 parking spots. This is not a good combination. And the city has put no parking signs up and down the four lane highway out front to make sure nobody parks out there. Because our members were parking there. Okay. And so we have this for sale sign out front of it. We're trying to build a new church, but we can't sell the old one. Because the church is a liability to the lot, not vice versa. And so I'm on the way over there, and I'm saying, Lord, make it a really big fire or a really small fire, please. And I prefer a really big one. Mm-hmm. That's what I was praying, honestly. I get halfway to the church. I'm now several miles away, and I can see the glow on the sky. I get about a quarter mile from the church. The four-lane highway, all four lanes are blocked. I park at the blockade. And I start walking, and it, the four-lane highway is like spaghetti factory with fire hoses running down the road. I can see aerial water cannons up over the church on those big, big lift fire trucks. I'm saying, Lord, keep it burning. At this point, I don't want to have to fix that old church. I want an insurance settlement, and we can move on to a new one. Remember the prayer is, little fire or big fire? And just as I'm walking through, a fire starts breaking through the roof. Lord, don't let them stop it. And I start asking the Lord to cause them a little trouble. And instantly, this big water cannon, where the fire is the hottest and spreading the fastest, quits. Oh, wow. I kept praying. They bring it down and they start working on it. They pull out this power hacksaw. They get this part off that's broken and it won't come off. And they take their power hacksaw just to cut it off. And I pray and the power hacksaw breaks. Yes, Lord! <laughs> the, the fire marshal walks up to me and finds out I'm the pastor. And he says, have you ever said anything to the effect that a fire wouldn't hurt you? I say, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm glad you don't know what I'm praying. And... Uh, they can't get this thing fixed. And they keep working and I keep praying. And all of a sudden, everything starts working right. They get the part on and they raise this big water truck up with this big water cannon right in that critical spot. And as they're doing, all the air horns and the fire engines all the way around the church go off. 
You know what that means? I didn't at the time. It means they were calling all the firemen out of the building. They're evacuating the building. They're now going into containment, no longer trying to save the building. At that point, their equipment now works. <laughs> they were pumping so much water in, we had a stream flowing out the front door down the four-lane highway, leaving charcoal sandbars down the highway. And I had to answer the fire marshal, yes, I've said something to the effect that a fire wouldn't hurt us, but I can't remember when. It was going to take me a couple of weeks to remember that. I now believe in repressed memory because every time I came close, I thought, how could you have said that? And it would go away from me. You know, when you're trying to remember something and it just, boy, was that doing it to me for a couple of weeks. When we finally got there, it actually pointed out who might be a suspect. But it took a while to get there. Meanwhile... I go into the community that day to talk to a music place to try and get what's left of a panel that was under a fireproof tarp the firemen threw over it. When they tip it up on edge, water flows out of it. You know what kind of piano, grand piano that one's going to be now. Hot water went into it. And uh, so, I mean, this church was no roof. Steel mangled, twisted from the heat. Concrete was left. It was that kind of a scene. And the guy said, I don't mean to offend you, but what it cost you to have that fire? I said, what do you mean? He said, how much do you have to pay for the arson? Not how much did it cost us loss. How much did I have to pay somebody to burn it down? It had this big for sale sign out front of it. He said, you know, white lightning? Which was, I learned later, was a, people paying to have their own places burned down. And uh, I said, no, we didn't do that. And our church is self-employed to a degree through their general conference. And that helped. But the, the news coverage, the television news coverage, always had the church burning with a for sale sign in front of it. The newspaper had the same kind of pictures. Photojournalism at its worst. And, uh, and it was found to be arson right off the bat. And it was arson. And so the months go by, and they don't have a suspect. Man. And, you know, I've been, I was questioned for hours, you know, sitting at a little table with two metal chairs on the other side, one metal chair on mine, good cop, bad cop, for hours. I've been through that. Because we had the greatest reason to burn it down. I have a 48-page statement. So uh, I know what it's like to get interrogated. <laughs> And eventually, I got a phone call. It was from the fire marshal. He said, we're going to have a news conference tomorrow morning. We've got your arsonist, but we can't, you can't tell anybody. Oh, great. He said, I want you to be there. I said, all right, I'll be there. That Tuesday night, we had a prayer meeting in somebody else's church because we didn't have one now, right? We're starting the process of our own new one. And we... I go to the prayer meeting on Tuesday night, and I said, I promise not to say what was going on, but you guys really want to watch the news tomorrow. What do you mean? You, you don't want to miss the news tomorrow. So I show up at the news conference. At the news conference, he tells them that an arsonist has been arrested. The story is, there's this guy, and, and he didn't tell the whole story, but there's this guy that 
is driving his moped the wrong way down a street in Washington, D.C. at 1 o'clock in the morning. When did our fire start? 1 o'clock in the morning. So this guy's going the wrong way on a moped at 1 in the morning, and a police officer sees him going the wrong way, pulls him over, and says, may I see your license, please? He reaches in his pocket and just hands the officer his wallet. The officer opens the wallet, and inside are pictures of little boys, children, with no clothes on. The officer realizes he's got a pedophile on his hands. He said, who are these boys? He said, they're my boys. What do you mean, my boys? They're my boys. Oh. He said, you know, you're not under arrest or anything, but what if I put your moped in the trunk of my car and you come down to the station with me, I'll give you some coffee and something to eat, and let's just talk for a while. Okay. So they put the moped in the trunk of the car, and he, he has the guy not get in the back, but in the front seat beside him. Because he's not under arrest. And he's trying to be his friend, because he wants him to talk. I got to spend a couple of days during the trial with this officer out in the hallway. And uh, so... Because we were both witnesses, we couldn't hear what each other was saying in the courtroom. But we could talk all day long in the ha- hallway outside. <laughs> and so he says, he gets in sitting there and he says, by the way, what kind of music do you like? Well, I like hard rock. What music? I mean, what station? He tells him the station. So the police officer tunes into the station the guy likes to listen to. Which group do you like the best? Well, Guns N' Roses. What album do you like? Death and Destruction. But I lost my Death and Destruction album in a fire up in a church in Hagerstown. Oh, you did? Tell me about it. So the guy did. And after they finished the arson investigation, I came into the church to see if there was anything savable. And I pulled the fireproof tarp back off the organ bench. A fireman had told me, we saved your organ for you. I said, what about the pipe chamber? The roof came through the pipe chamber. We, they, we had the council, but, you know, <laughs> pipe organ without pipes. Yeah. <laughs> but when I pulled it up, there was this little paper bag laying there. Inside of the paper bag was a West Virginia fishing map, bus ticket stubs, but no identification, just uh, the, the sleeve, I mean, and a Guns N' Roses tape. And, the, and some partly eaten pizza, and the guy had touched the pizza, and then the Guns and Roses tape, and I could see fingerprints without dusting. I called the fire marshal back. So we had fingerprints, but we didn't know who it was. And so this officer thinks, you know, Hagerstown, that was just, I do remember a big fire up in Hagerstown in a church. And so he says, just a minute, he goes over and he compares notes to this, what the police reports and what the guy says, and it matches. Only nobody knew what we found in that church. Only the fire marshal and I knew what was in that bag. And he's identifying what's in that bag. So they knew they had him. And so at the news conference, he explains this stuff. And he's a really funny character. He doesn't like to talk. He tells them real quickly what's going on. And they ask a couple of questions. He says, I'm done with questions. If you have any more questions, talk to Pastor Rosenberg. And he disappears out the back door of the conference. He didn't tell me I was had a news conference coming on. And so now we have the television and the newspaper, and they interview me about our church. And I could tell them, okay, it's Wednesday. We had a grand, I mean, a groundbreaking on Sunday. And the community had been thinking, we burned the church ourselves. Now get this. 
God's timing is perfect. On Tuesday, this guy's arrested. Wednesday, we get a news conference handed over to us, and the story, when it breaks, television, newspaper, the whole thing is, arsonists arrested, groundbreaking on Sunday. (laughs) I have a question. Can God use all things for good? Not only did he clear us with that report, our church had been divided going into this, and they came out unified on the building program. They were completely divided right down the middle. Should we sell and build or not? The leader of the opposition walked onto the site with the building still smoking, walked up to me and said, make sure it's a good, strong building committee. (laughs) The attack from the outside, they pulled together and God cleared us and we became a story that they followed all the way through. I'll tell you, God's awesome. Now, from here, we're going to pick up some other things like story listening, other things. But friends, God will use the very worst for the best. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for everything you've done, what you are doing, and what you will do. Lord, help us to be realistically optimistic, knowing that you'll pull it off, and that we can just simply trust you. Help us not to be lulled to sleep, to know that the unthinkable is coming, but you can handle it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow.